Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. Taking our Bibles this evening and turning to the book of Ephesians, the fifth chapter, Ephesians chapter 5. We're in a series under the theme, Contemporary Christian Concerns. Our focus this evening, waging worship wars wisely. There are many different focuses we could have when we talk about the worship wars But this is sure, this is a topic that needs to be addressed at least on an annual basis. And this evening as we focus on the worship wars, our focus is going to be on the topic of music because it seems to be the most obvious schismatic issue in the worship wars in the 21st century. And I've learned a lot about music recently. For instance, I've learned recently the definition of perfect pitch. Maybe you've heard that definition It's when you take your bagpipes and throw them into a dumpster and it hits your accordion on the way in. That's perfect pitch. Some of you will appreciate that. Having learned that definition, I find myself now qualified to speak on everything about music. So we're taking our Bibles tonight and turning to the book of Ephesians, the book of Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to read together verses 18 and 19. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. The Word of God says, "...and be not drunk with wine when is excess." But be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Let's ask the Lord to bless as we look into His Word this evening. Now, Father, I pray that You give us wisdom as we seek that wisdom in Your Word tonight. Help the message this evening to be a benefit to those who have gathered in this place. Lord, I pray You keep us from distraction. Help the uh, electronic tools to work well. Thank you that we can have unity and peace in this place. Thank you for the song of peace that was sung tonight as the girls ministered so well. We pray that that peace would lead us tonight, not only as we look in your word, but as we go out from this place to represent you in our community of increasing confusion. Help this congregation to be a place of clarity, not because of personal preference, not because we seek to seize upon tradition, rather because we seek to be led by the principles of your word. May they indeed stand the test of time. For we know, Lord, that as we would seek your word by your spirit, we would know peace. So give that to us in abundance this evening, and we'll thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. Gary Gilley, speaking on the topic of the contemporary culture war, especially as it's being faced in churches, notes that the new paradigm church has caught the wave of our times and has created a church for the entertainment age. He continues, rather than expose and correct the superficiality and wrong-mindedness of a generation addicted to fun, amusement, and self, the modern church has all too often chosen to go with the flow and to give them what they want. I want to speak about that theme this evening. American churches are waging wars, and the battlefront that we focus in on or zero in on this evening is music, which seems to be the most obvious focus of the wars that are raging with regard to worship in our culture today. The believer is admonished, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Sadly, Many houses of worship are so cluttered with worldliness in 2021 that it's very difficult to keep from distraction 
Worldliness has crowded out holiness. And many people find themselves not seeing the God of holiness, not learning that the challenge in every generation is be holy, for I am holy, saith the Lord. Worldliness has come to occupy many churches. And this is not new. The challenge of worldliness in ministry has been ongoing for generations. Charles Haddon Spurgeon in 1887 was involved in a worship war within the Baptist Union of Great Britain. He, having been instrumental and used of God to see many churches established and many young men trained for ministry, was grieved to see the direction of the churches. And so he wrote in his regular magazine, The Sword and the Trowel, these words. 1887, yet they sound like today. The fact is that many would like to unite church and stage, cards and prayer, dancing and sacraments. When the old faith is gone and enthusiasm for the gospel is extinct, it's no wonder the people seek something else in the way of delight. Lacking bread, they feed on ashes. Rejecting the way of the Lord, they run greedily in the path of folly. Recently, someone sent me a statement by John MacArthur that I found to be very true. In fact, my heart resonated with it so much that I share it with you this evening. MacArthur is now an 81-year-old pastor who's been in the same place for 50 years. This is what he said about American evangelicalism. Multitudes of dominantly evangelical churches today are nothing more than psychological, sociological, pragmatic, anthropocentric community centers. Dressed in religious garb or something more stylishly casual like printed t-shirts and grungy torn blue jeans, they use the name of the Lord as a token, but they believe success or failure hinges on their own cleverness. They measure effectiveness by attendance figures or money in the offering plate. Their idea of worship is a mindless musical stimulation designed for emotional manipulation or the people rather than praise offer to God vague spirituality. Nice-sounding platitudes replace biblical doctrine and true holiness. The focus of the message is personal satisfaction rather than spirit-empowered sanctification. People attend not because they love God, because everything they see and hear caters to their own love of self. The New Testament takes the matter of music seriously. In the book of Colossians, chapter 3, and verse 16, we read, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts unto the Lord. We began this evening by looking at Ephesians chapter 5, where we ought to be reminded that the Bible says, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. Let me remind you this evening that when it says speaking to yourselves, That's among yourselves. That's a reciprocal pronoun. So here we have a commandment of God given to all of us to sing. When we gather together, to sing. To admonish one another in song. In other words, when we sing, we have a mutual responsibility to edify brothers and sisters in Christ. As we sing, those words ought to challenge those around us. There are those who have sadly ill-defined the first part of a church service as worship and the last part of, of the church service as something else, typically preaching. 
But from the time we gather together and focus our attention on the things of the Lord, we are worshiping the Lord. And the elements of worship include singing and prayer. The elements of worship include giving, and the elements include, of course, preaching. This evening, we're focusing on the matter of singing, and as we focus on the matter of singing, I hope I have everyone's attention. Some say, well, I can't sing very well. I understand that. But that doesn't give you the opportunity to not sing. As a Christian, when we gather, the obligation is mutual. There are those today who are making so much of this reciprocal pronoun that they're saying we ought not to sing as a choir or perhaps have any special music because it's a congregational responsibility. But I do believe that the reciprocal pronoun allows for one to sing to many. In fact, when one sings to many in a prepared song, I often look at that as a prepared testimony or a prepared prayer. We're going to discover in the pages of God's Word this evening that surely in Old Testament times there were choirs who united together in order to minister to the congregation as they gathered music ministers collectively. The New Testament has nothing to say about incense. The New Testament has nothing to say about chanting. The New Testament has nothing to say about sacred dance. But the church is called to sing. Our study this evening focuses on that. Someone has said, as goes the music, so goes the ministry. I'm going to have you turn with me to the 98th Psalm. The 98th Psalm. Music is a primary battleground within American congregations. In his book, Worship in Spirit and Truth, John Frame states the obvious when he says, Worship in music is a large topic fraught with controversy today. And many have warned that the ministry will follow the music. Sadly, many of those warnings have been unheard, but I think those warnings are entirely true. As Christians choose how they worship based more on musical form than on doctrine, we see a waning of religious interest and revival spirit and the power of God in our country. It was years ago that I clipped an article by Michael Hamilton. He was writing in Christianity Today, July of 1999, and this is what he said. This is 1999, 21 years ago. American churchgoers no longer sort themselves out by denomination so much as by musical preference. For better or for worse, the kind of music a church offers increasingly defines the kind of person who will attend. Because for this generation, music is at the very center of understanding. I'd go further than that. Music has become in America a matter of personal identification and a matter of religious identification. I can't remember the last time someone came up to me when they visited the church and said, Pastor Phelps, is this church Arminian? Pastor Phelps, what does this church believe about the matter of eschatology? Doctrinal questions don't seem to be motivating people when they're visiting churches. But assessment of how worship is done, that's a constant. As goes the music, so goes the ministry. It's true because when the worship 
is a matter of personal taste. It's about pleasing self. And that's egocentric. Rather than pleasing God. And our worship, obviously, our worship needs to be theocentric. It needs to be about God. We've opened our Bibles to the 98th Psalm. Follow along and be instructed by this psalm with regard to the direction with which music should flow. Psalm 98. Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto whom? The Lord. For he hath done marvelous things. What inspires us to sing unto the Lord? He's done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm hath gotten him the victory. The Lord hath made known his salvation, his righteousness, hath he openly showed in the sight of the heathen. He hath remembered his mercy and his truth toward the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of God. Make a joyful noise unto whom? The Lord. All the earth. Make a loud noise. Rejoice and sing praise. Sing unto the Lord with the harp. With the harp and with the voice of a psalm. With trumpets and sound of cornet. Make a joyful noise before the Lord the King. Let the sea roar and the fullness thereof and the world and they that dwell therein. Let the floods clap their hands. Let the hills be joyful together before the Lord. For he cometh to judge the earth with righteousness shall he judge. I don't like singing. Maybe that's what you think. Well, God does. And he likes your singing. With the croaking voice or the cracking voice that he's given to you, yet he finds joy when we sing for joy of our salvation. Well, it's a matter of personal taste, some will say. And when they say that, they confess that their philosophy of worship is egocentric rather than being theocentric. And when worship is styled specifically to attract seekers rather than saints, sadly, it's designed for the wrong participants. There are many who design their church services in order to gain an audience in order to please a community other than the community of faith. Alistair McGrath, in the Blackwell Encyclopedia of Modern Christian Thought, notes, there are pragmatists, especially in American evangelicalism, to whom questions of suitable style are irrelevant when compared to more important matters of evangelical church growth. Whatever brings people into the church and keeps them there, after all, is the most important in practice, overt, secular music styles are those thought to achieve this objective. There are those who have turned aside from the things of the Lord and turned to having concerts in order to attract people and appeal to those people's, sadly, secular, base, emotional, and sensual desire. I love what Warren Wiersbe said. Wiersbe said, the church is to feed the sheep. It's not to entertain the goats. Ephesians chapter 4 says he gave some pastors and teachers. What was the purpose of giving pastors and teachers? For the edification of the saints unto the work of the ministry. Now remember, we started in Ephesians chapter 5. The mandate of music in Ephesians chapter 5 is speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. 
speaking among yourselves. The mandate that is given there is something altogether different than hosting a concert in order to appeal to the secular desires of the community roundabout. And as churches fill with people who ask the question, do I like it? More than asking the question, does God like it? Sadly, they lay aside principle and they imbibe of pragmatism and pragmatism will pollute the house of the Lord. Calvin Johnson said it this way in the journal of church music, worship becomes an orgy of self-indulgence. What a grossly accurate picture. As goes the music, so goes the ministry. So, do you have a, an accurate biblical picture of what acceptable worship looks like, especially as we reference the topic of music? I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles this evening and go back to 2 Chronicles chapter 5. 2 Chronicles chapter 5 presents one of the clearest pictures of what worship music is to look like. The passage, of course, is Solomon's, Solomon's dedication of the temple. David had left great wealth for the temple to be built. Solomon builds that temple. And now as we turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 5, we see the temple is being dedicated and something wonderful happens. Look at the end of verse 14. The glory of the Lord filled the house of God. In 2 Chronicles chapter 5, the Shekinah glory of Israel fills the house of God. The end of verse 13, the house was filled with a cloud, even the house of the Lord, verse 14, so that the priests could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud. There's a lot that we can learn from 2 Chronicles chapter 5 with regard to appropriate music in worship settings. Let me just highlight a few thoughts along the way. After all, this particular worship setting saw the favor of God, the blessing of God given, undeniably as the Shekinah glory fell. Wouldn't you have loved to have been in that service? When it was so palpable, so obvious, so visible that God had brought his blessing. I don't know how people would respond. Some with tears, some with chills. And no one left that service without a response that would be life-changing. So how was that service conducted? Well, I want you to see here first that the music was carefully prepared. Second Chronicles chapter 5 is actually a pageantry of preparation. In verse 3 we read, Wherefore all the men of Israel assembled themselves unto the king in the feast which was in the seventh month. So a date was set for the service. It was announced. Verse 4, and all the elders of Israel came and the Levites took up the ark. The ark was brought in. Verse 6, King Solomon, all the congregation of Israel that were assembled unto him before the ark, sacrificed sheep and oxen, which could not be told for numbers or multitude. A sacrifice, a huge sacrifice was assembled. And verse 12, it's noteworthy that there were some who were selected to sing. Look at verse 12. And the Levites, which were the singers, all of them, Asaph and Heman, of Jejuthun and their sons and their brethren being arrayed in white linen, having cymbals and psalteries and harps, stood at the east end of the altar, and with them a hundred and twenty priests sounding the trumpets. This was not a haphazard affair. 
This was a prepared service. I've sometimes had people say, it just seems like your church or the ministry where you are, it just seems like everything is laid out. I'm always reminded that 1 Corinthians 14 verse 40 says, let all things be done decently in order. But more than that, I'm reminded that there's an orderliness in the services of the Old Testament that brought about God's great blessing. Those who were there, the singers, no doubt, had rehearsed to sing together. The trumpeters, you don't play 120 trumpets together without some measure of rehearsal ahead of time and someone standing up to at least give them a, give them a downbeat to start with. This music was prepared and the musicians were pure. We read in verse 12, the Levites, which were the singers, those Levites who were the singers were dressed in white linen. That represents purity. And even so, when we come to the matter of musical ministry today, there ought to be a heart that's prepared. I think especially of those who minister on the platform. I always appreciate on Sunday mornings before anyone gathers, there's a mic check. A time for those who will be singing, whether like the trio did this evening or the quartet this morning, they want to make sure that everyone can hear it. And so it's gone through. And before that mic check, there's always just a moment of prayer to dedicate the musicians and the music in preparation for the Lord's Day. That's not an insignificant moment. It's a very significant moment because everyone who ministers in song ought to plead with the Lord to give them the heart, hearts that are pure. The 24th Psalm asked, And who shall, who shall ascend unto the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity. Something else inter interesting here. Instruments accompanied the singers. Instruments accompanied the singers. In fact, the instruments are named in the passage. And as we look at this passage, I find an intriguing question that you may want to do some more study on. We ask the question this evening, are all instruments appropriate when we gather together to worship? After all, as you study the Old Testament, you'll find that some nine instruments are listed in the Old Testament. Here's the listing of them. There's the psaltery, that's a plucked string instrument. There's the harp, the cymbal, the trumpet. There's the flute that's played like a recorder. There's the timbrel or the tambourine, an organ, which is a mouth organ with seven pipes, larger but similar to our harmonica. And there's the pipe, a sideways flute. These are the nine instruments of the Old Testament. But when you study these nine instruments of the Old Testament, you find that not all of them are engaged in worship services. Some instruments, it seems, were not fit for worship. So let's go to 2 Chronicles chapter 29. 2 Chronicles chapter 29, and see if we can quickly identify which instruments were used in worship, and see if we can extract a principle from this excursus, all right? 2 Chronicles chapter 29. 2 Chronicles 29, we begin our reading in verse 25. And he set the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, and with psalteries, and with harps. All right, they were in the house of the Lord. That's the, temp the temple. What did they have? They had cymbals, psalteries, and harps. According to the commandment of David and of Gad, the king's seer, that would mean prophet. Nathan, the prophet. So David and Gad 
and Nathan, these three prophets together, had prophesied before, had given instructions to the nation of Israel with regard to what instruments the Levites would play in the temple. What were those instruments? Cymbals, psalteries, and harps. And the Levites stood with the instruments, verse 26 of David, and the priests with trumpets. All right, now we have a fourth instrument that's been added to this ensemble. Hezekiah commanded to offer the burnt offering on the altar, and when the burnt offering began, the song of the Lord began also with trumpets and instruments. No passing reference here, an important reference. Instruments ordained by David, king of Israel. So what did we just learn? We learned that there are four instruments out of those that are listed in the Old Testament that are found in use in the temple. The psaltery, the harp, the cymbals, and typically the trumpet to call the people to worship. If you want to do some study on your own, here are some other references that you can look up. You'll see the same listing of instrumentation in 1 Chronicles 16, verses 5 and 6. 1 Chronicles 25, verses 1 and 6. And as we just discovered in 2 Chronicles 29, verses 25 to 29. What's important about that? You ready? Take your Bible for just a moment. Who hasn't been on this journey before in conversation about modern worship? Take your Bible. Let's go to Psalm 149. Psalm 149. Psalm 149 and Psalm 150 are often used by people who would expand how worship is done, specifically how music services are done. And often people will run to Psalm 149 and Psalm 150 and say, aha, look at what's going on here. Psalm 149, praise you the Lord, sing unto the Lord a new song and his praise in the congregation of the saints. In other words, when you gather together, sing the Lord's praise. Let Israel, specific reference here of interest, Israel was a theocracy. God over Israel. Israel was also a nation. It's God's nation. Let Israel rejoice in him that made him. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. Let them praise his name in dance. Let them sing praises unto him with the timbrel and the harp. Now those are not instruments that are used in the house of the Lord. Those are not instruments that were commanded by the prophets to be used in the temple. What's going on here? Israel was a theocracy under God. Obviously, they worshiped God in the temple. But here we're learning that they had national celebrations. Specifically, this celebration was to thank God for their king, to be joyful, verse 2, in their king. And in those national celebrations, kind of like our 4th of July, you'd expect to hear some John Philip Sousa. That'd be appropriate. You'd expect your heart to go pitter-patter as you hear some patriotic songs. That would be appropriate. And some of the music that's appropriate for our national celebrations might not necessarily be appropriate for worship settings. Even so, we have in Psalm 149 something other than a temple worship setting. The Lord taketh pleasure in his people. He will beautify the meek with salvation. Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud. How do we know this is not the temple? Let them sing aloud upon their beds. I doubt that they were bringing their beds into the temple. This is a national song. How many times have New Testament believers been brought to the 149th Psalm and say, 
and, and heard this conversation. You, you're just being too restrictive. I think we ought to have dance in church. I mean, look here. There's dance in the Psalms. Let me make a promise to you. If you come to Israel with us on the Israel trip in January of 2023, we'll dance. There's a dance that the Jewish people have done for millennia. And when we're out on the Sea of Galilee, I don't want to break any secrets, but out on the Sea of Galilee, when we put the cameras away, no, we, people have cameras there. And those who have traveled understand this. We enjoy a celebratory, civil dance. It's not sensual, but it's fun. That would be an appropriate setting for the 149th Psalm. The 150th Psalm, praise you the Lord, praise God in his sanctuary. Now there you say, okay, this is for the temple, right? No, no, the sanctuary here is going to be defined for us as the firmament of his power. For we're praising him for his mighty acts. In other words, any time you're under the heavens, you want to be praising the Lord for his acts. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with the sound of the trumpet. Now that's a temple instrument. Praise him with the psaltery and the harp temple instruments. With the timbrel and dance. The timbrel is not a temple instrument. Praise him with stringed instruments and organs. Not temple instruments. Here again we have a reference to dance. This seems to be another nationally celebratory psalm. But how many times have we been taken to these psalms to be told, oh, you folks need to allow some dance. Now that's just a, a moment of tangent, if you will. But it's an important tangent, and if you want to follow that tangent further, we have a book in the bookstore I'd commend to you by Peter Masters on the topic of worship or entertainment. That would be a help to you. There's also a book by Garen Wolf that would be a help to you on this topic. But music, we discover, is to be a sound of praise to the Lord. I'm going back to 2 Chronicles chapter 5, where the Shekinah glory falls, and in the 13th verse, it came to pass, as the trumpeters and the singers were as one, to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord, when they lifted up their voices with the trumpets and the cymbals and the instruments of music and praised the Lord, saying, He is good, His mercy endures forever, that the house was filled with a cloud, even the house of the Lord. The Levites were using their voices to glorify God. Was it congregational music? Yes. Who was singing? The Levites. I thought you said it was congregational music. Yes. The Levites were singing to the congregation, and they all understood. The other thing that I find interesting in 2 Chronicles 5, and very applicable, is this. Music is to be unifying. It came to pass, verse 13, as the trumpets and singers were as one, to make one sound to be heard in praising God. It's so sad to think that the medium of music that should draw our hearts together in unity has been so corrupted in recent years as to divide the hearts of God's children between generations. That that which ought to draw our hearts together in worship to God has been designated as contemporary and traditional and generationalized to cause schisms. Folks, we ought to be very thankful at Colonial Hills Baptist Church for one body and one spirit that God has given. But we ought to realize that this has happened in American Christianity, and in the happening of it, many hearts have been terribly broken. There's not to be improvisation here. This is a planned service to bring about praise to our God. And so there are some who will say, hey, 
Do you think that really style matters? And of course, I'm going to say yes, I believe style matters. Style of music matters. Everything that we do matters. Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. There's nothing that you do that doesn't matter to God. Everything matters. God's interested in everything you do. And are you interested in everything He wants? Because when we come together to worship, the question is, is God pleased? Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 10 says, we're to be proving what is acceptable to the Lord. If you take the mindset, God doesn't concern himself with styles of music. Are you living in light of Ephesians 5 and verse 10, proving what is acceptable to the Lord? God doesn't care what I listen to. Are you living in light of 1 Thessalonians 5, 21, prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. God's God's pleased with anything. Listen, Philippians 1, verse 9, approve things that are excellent or of more value, that you may be sincere, examined by sunlight to see if there are any cracks in your character, without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, under the glory and praise of God. Surely, when it comes to asking God for discernment, we ought to be asking God for discernment on the topic, the style of music, And does it matter? This is an unavoidable consideration for those who desire to please the Lord. So let me say at least this. Christians must consider the text of every song. They must consider the text of every song. After all, we're to be teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We're supposed to be asking, is the text both doctrinally and didactically beneficial. The text needs to be doctrinally beneficial. The Word of Christ is spoken of. Colossians chapter 3 says, admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. When we talk Colossians chapter 3, we talk about the Word of Christ dwelling in us richly. What is that Word of Christ? Well, it's the New Testament. It's the Scriptures. Does the song, by way of text, match the truth that we find in Scripture? We have to be honest here. We're living in a generation that is far more interested, it seems, in how a song makes a person feel than how a song makes a person think. And it's difficult to admonish one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and check our brain at the door. Real worship is built on doctrinal foundations. The text must be doctrinally beneficial. And the text must be didactic in character. Teaching and admonishing one another. We're to instruct and correct as we sing. John Still in Christianity Today magazine a good while ago made note, some Christian songs today, quote, are so veiled in terms of spiritual content that their meaning is lost to all but the most imaginative. They call them crossover artists. They sing a song portending to be of a Christian venue, but a person can hear the song and think, it's just a love song. There's no spiritual truth in it 
that would cause anyone to immediately identify that song as being something about the Lord at all. That's very common. And it's very much against what God's Word would say when it comes to our songs being doctrinally beneficial, didactic in nature. And then we ask the question, or make note, that Christians must consider the tone of the song. Not all music is appropriate for worship. You'll remember in 1 Samuel chapter 16 that Saul was out of his mind and David was brought to play with the harp. And as David played, Saul's soul was soothed. David wasn't singing. There's power in musical tone, even without words, because tones communicate messages. 1 Corinthians asked the question, if the trumpet gives an uncertain sound, who will be able to go forth in the day of battle? Tones communicate moral messages. It was Aristotle many years ago who said, music directly represents the passions or states of the soul, gentleness, anger, courage, temperance. If one listens to the wrong kind of music, he'll become the wrong kind of person. Music is a language. It's often called the language of emotion. You know it's true. I don't want to embarrass my wife, but I can't ever imagine sitting at home with my wife watching a horror movie. It just wouldn't be the genre that she would ever select. Wouldn't matter the time of day, just wouldn't happen. But from time to time, something may have come across the screen, perhaps a little girl dancing through buttercups out on the hillside. The butterflies are floating around her. The music is ever so bright, and then suddenly you hear this pulsing, boom, boom, boom. And my wife will intuitively say, and she's not very musical, Chuck, turn the channel, turn the channel, turn the channel. Why? There's nothing on the screen. That's what I'll always say. They're not, she's just dancing in the field, honey. There's nothing going on here. Turn it, turn it. She knows from the sound of the music. It would be impossible to think about a Hollywood movie having any success without a Hollywood score. The music presents as much the message as the words. The only community that seems to argue against this in the generation in which we live, this is really sad, is the evangelical Christian community. And when evangelical Christians say, tones don't make any difference, they're arguing with a base desire to gratify their flesh, but they've checked their logic at the door. Amy Grant said, I think the purpose of music in general is that music connects us. It articulates our experiences as humans. It connects us to what we feel and can't say. That's exactly right. It was way back in 1938, Cynthia Moss said, Music is religious or irreligious according to the set of emotions that it stirs. I want you to hear this. This is 1938. Music is religious or irreligious according to the emotions that it stirs. Therefore, jazz music with syncopated time, music that makes its chief appeal to the heels instead of the head and the heart, has no place in building 
a worship service. Professional musician Michael Cole said, since music is an emotional language, and since some emotions are wrong for the child of God, then some music is wrong for the Christian. The Word of God challenges us, wherefore putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor. And then it says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. In other words, Ephesians chapter 4 says there are some emotions that are wrong for Christians. And there are some musical scores that stir those emotions. And music is a language of emotion. Therefore, we need to be careful. The style of music is often more powerful than the text. The song, Immortal Father of Mankind, probably not going to be sung to a Looney Tunes In fact, I've done this before. I'm hoping this will work. I'm going to ask you to turn on the pulpit mic for me for just a minute. Every culture recognizes, hear the difference? Every culture recognizes that that music in itself, without the words, represents emotions, represents part of the culture that may be right or may be wrong. I've traveled to some 35 countries. I've been in some bizarre places. I I haven't gone to the well-settled places, and the tourist places. In the Chin Hills of Myanmar, I stood and talked with my son at my side to a man who'd never been out of the Chin Hills of Myanmar. He had no theological training from the West, and I asked the question I ask all over the world, is there some music that you hear in your culture, that you hear in your city, that you would never use in your church? He immediately responded, oh yes. I said, so what would you not hear in your church? He said, we won't have drums in our church. Boy, he was really, I mean, he was really moved by this question. I said, why is that? He said, way back in the 1940s, they tried to bring drums into our churches in Myanmar. And he said, where there were drums, they wanted to dance. And where they wanted to dance, they wanted to drink. Where they wanted to drink, they became immoral. And now they don't come to church. We don't want drums in our church. I was with a minister in India and asked the question. And Indian music, let me just tell you, I can't understand it. And I have a granddaughter who now plays it beautifully, I guess. (laughs) I don't really understand it. Okay, I'm being confessional. Ask the question in India, is there some music in your community that you wouldn't want? Absolutely. Ask the question in Cambodia. No, yeah, there's, I've asked the question in Africa. All over the world, I've asked that question. Why? Because we've almost been pre-programmed as Christians today to not get it on this. So I'm going to give you a visual and help to hope, hopefully help you get it on this. Let me see if I can make it happen. It'll be a miracle if this happens. Here's a picture. the garden tomb, folks. How you feeling? Did that music match? No. No. Every culture recognizes that. We live in a culture that seeks to deny that. But let me just tell you something. Rock music, and I know there are so many different styles of rock music, it's almost like genders now, you can't keep up with the number of descriptors. 
But I'm going to speak generically and say that rock music has a message. On the 10th of December, 1987, Gene Simmons of the rock group KISS was asked on Entertainment Tonight if parents should be concerned about their teens listening to their music. He responded, they should be concerned because rock is all about sex with a 100 megaton bomb, the beat. David Bowie, famed rock musician, is quoted as saying, rock music has always been the devil's music, and you can't convince me it isn't. Those who argue that all forms of music are acceptable have forgotten that the New Testament says in Hebrews 12 and verse 28, Wherefore we, receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably. How do we serve Him acceptably? With reverence and godly fear. It's hard to take that last phrase and put it into a contemporary evangelical church service. Reverence and godly fear. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. What you've heard has been an encouragement to you. Please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindy.org or check us out on Facebook. And we hope to see you next time on the Colonial Hills Podcast.